Please take your Bibles this morning and turn to Mark chapter 5, verse 21. We're going to read through verse 43 of Mark chapter 5 here in a second. Mark chapter 5, verses 21 through 43. As you're finding the passage, perhaps you're not aware of this, but I want to make you, let you guys know that, that I'm an art collector. Um, did you guys know that, that I'm an art collector? Um, I have quite a collection of some of the most valuable and beautiful artwork ever assembled by man. Perhaps you've seen some of my collection. And some of it's up in my office. Um, let, me, let me show you some of it here. All right. This is, this is my art collection, at least some of it, okay? Um, amazing pieces of art, very treasured by, by myself. I've actually run out of uh, pages here and have to shove them in the front of the book here. Oh, let's see here. This artwork is signed by Emma Kate. All right. There she is shrinking on the front row. Um, let's see here. We've got something from Trinity. Um, I saw a Piper artwork. It's, it's very, Piper really goes for the modern art look. Just, uh, it's really, really interesting. Um, these are very treasured and precious pieces of artwork to me. I am an art collector. Now, these are no Picassos, Rembrandts, or Da Vinci's, but they're better than that to me. These are precious to me because it's my children's artwork. I even have a Jedi that Noah drew, but I'm not going to show that one, bud. Um, They're not perfect, but they're beautiful. They are not flawless, but they're fascinating. They are not the work of genius, but they are a labor of love. And thus, they are more than accepted by me. I am so thankful for this artwork that my children have given me over the years. And this is just part of it. I have a much larger collection at home. Um, we have a gallery on our refrigerator, too. In today's text, in Mark chapter 5... Verses 21 through 43, we see faith on display. And like my children's pictures, this faith is not without its imperfections. It's not without some deficiencies. But it is more than acceptable to Christ. He is willing to accept the imperfect and even deficient faith of the people we see in today's text. He acknowledges it, he responds to it, and he even strengthens it. The quality of faith is not what's most important in today's text, but the object of the faith. The quality of the faith isn't as important as the object of the faith. So we're going to look at this text. I want you to stand with me, if you would. Mark chapter 5, verses 21 through 43. We stand at Harbin's in the honor of reading God's word because we believe that this is God's infallible, inerrant word to us So these words carry the same authority as if Jesus Christ were here in the flesh speaking to us personally. This is God's word. So Mark chapter 5, let's begin in verse 21. We'll read all the way through verse 43. The word of the Lord says this. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him. And he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, 
My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better but grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. When he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead. But sleeping, and they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for these amazing, stunning stories from the scriptures. We thank you for what what it is that we can learn and discern from the scriptures, but mostly what it is that we can see about our Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus, we want to see you more fully today and leave here worshipers who worship you more rightly today. So Holy Spirit, we ask you to open up ears, open up eyes, give me a mouth to speak. Lord, I pray that you would not allow me to stray into error, but keep us in line with your word because your word is where the power resides It will not return this morning void. So we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Now in case you are visiting or you're new to Harbin's this morning, we are going through a sermon series entitled Seeing and Savoring Jesus Christ. It's a chronological verse-by-verse walk through the earthly ministry of Christ using all four of the Gospels. So really it's it's a harmonization of the Gospel accounts. And our goal, as I said in my prayer, was, is so that we'll see Christ more fully and worship him more rightly. And in the last two weeks, we've been in a section of Mark's gospel, Mark chapter 4, verse 36 
through this last verse we read today, Mark chapter 5, verse 43. So it's the last part of chapter 4 and all of chapter 5. That's one um, literary unit in the gospel of Mark. It's paralleled in Matthew chapter 8 and 9 as well as Luke chapter 8. And what we have in this section, both in Mark's version and in Matthew and Luke's version, are four events recorded for us that highlight four aspects of Jesus' divine power and lordship. The first demonstration of Jesus' power and lordship is the one we looked at two weeks ago in Mark chapter 4, verses 36 through 40, where Jesus calmed the storm. You remember, he was tired from teaching and ministry, and he said to his disciples, let's go to the other side of the lake, and they do, and he falls asleep on the boat. The storm comes, he gets up, they, they wake him up with this sort of rude uh, questioning of whether or not he really cared for them, and he calms the storm, and then he rebukes them for their lack of faith. But we saw in that text that Jesus demonstrates divine power and lordship over nature. In last week's text, Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 20, we saw Jesus powerfully display his lordship and power over the demonic. So not only is he lord over nature, he's also lord even over the demonic. And in that story, we saw that the spiritual forces of evil are very real. And they really hate God, and they really hate God's image bearers. They hate people. Yet these same spiritual forces of evil have no shot against Jesus. We we see that he easily defeated the demons in last week's story, which pointed ultimately to the fact that Jesus triumphed over the rulers and the principalities, putting them to open shame at the cross. And so we come to today's text. In today's text, we see another demonstration of Jesus' divine lordship and power. So he's lord over nature, over demons, and in today's text we'll see his power and lordship over disease and over death itself. So let's pick up the story in verse 21. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side. So remind you what's happening here. He's coming back now to the Galilean side of the Sea of Galilee. So they had gone originally across to the Gentile side, which was called the, the Decapolis. That's the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. And now after that event, they're coming back. And we read that a great crowd gathered about him. Now, this is similar. There's some parallels here between what's happening on this side of the lake and what happened on the other side of the lake. There's some parallels. So there's some similarities, but there's also some very striking differences So we see that this great crowd had had gathered around Jesus. The same thing had happened over at the Decapolis. A great crowd had gathered around Jesus. But if you remember, they wanted him to leave. They all show up and they, they want Jesus to leave. But this crowd is welcoming Jesus. They want him to stay. Verse 22. Then one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, seeing him, fell at his feet. So here's another parallel. On the other side of the lake... There was a a demon-possessed man, possessed by a a group of demons called Legion. And and when he saw Jesus, he came and fell at Jesus' feet. Okay? But he came falling at Jesus' feet in defeat because he was full of demons. But this man falls at Jesus' feet in desperation. Verse 23 says that Jairus implored him earnestly. The word implore here is the same word used four times in the passage we looked at last week that's translated as beg. Remember last week I said there's a lot of begging going on in this text. It's the same word here. But in this case, Jairus is begging for Jesus not to turn away from him, whereas the demon-possessed man was begging that Jesus not torment him. 
Verse 23 goes on with Jairus' request. He says, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. So there's a different crowd, a different reason for falling at Jesus' feet, and a different type of begging going on. And this man's request brings me to my first point of today's sermon. And it's simply this. Jesus compassionately acknowledges the desperate faith of helpless people. Jesus compassionately acknowledges the desperate faith of helpless people. This man is desperate. Perhaps you can relate to him. I don't don't know how many parents have had an experience in this room here where you've had a child who is ill. But when I hear this story, it immediately takes my mind back to when Noah was eight days old. Noah was eight days old and... um, I'm sorry, when he was eight days old is when we began to notice he was having reflux. It was actually when he was five weeks old that the story actually happens. And so he was put on a medicine early on by some doctors. And I can't remember what it was exactly called. Like I think it was um, Zantac or something like that for, for children because his reflux was so bad he couldn't keep down anything that he was eating. And so they put him on this medicine. But I remember uh, that day when he was about five weeks old when we went into the bedroom and we basically couldn't wake him up. He just was limp. We picked him up. He, he had a pulse and he was breathing, but he wasn't hardly responding to us. And Heather and I there were, were freaking out and we, we immediately got in the car and rushed into the hospital. And on the way we were praying and we were laying our hands on Noah, praying and asking that God would, would heal him. We didn't know what was going on. We were scared to death. We were desperate. We were asking for God to do something. At that time, I remember us, we said, Lord, he is yours. Use him however you see fit. Just save him. He belongs to you. You can do whatever you want, but please, Jesus, save him. And we, we prayed over him, and we found out that there had been a pharmaceutical mistake. The drugstore had actually overdosed him on Zantac. They were giving him five times more than what an adult should get of Zantac. And so he, had, he was basically being overdosed on Zantac. As, as I think that's what it was called. The doctor actually told us, he said, one or two more days and Noah would have died. I'll never forget the desperation we felt. So I, I feel like I can identify with, with Jairus here, with the desperation I think we all, to a degree, can identify with this pain. Every time we see a a St. Jude's Children's Hospital commercial, doesn't your soul cry out like mine does that children aren't supposed to be suffering like this? This isn't supposed to happen. Children aren't supposed to die before their parents, and they're not supposed to suffer these horrible diseases. But they do because we live in a broken and fallen world, a world that Jesus condescended to come into and deal with people like Jairus here. And minister to them with great compassion. Jairus comes to Jesus helpless, desperate. And his words express a simple and raw faith. My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. He believes, he has faith that Jesus can do something about his desperate situation. And Jesus compassionately responds, even though he does it with no words. He simply says, and he went with him. Now to fully see the mercy of Jesus on display here, we need to remember who Jairus is. According to the text here, he is a ruler of the synagogue. 
probably in light of Matthew 9, the parallel account, which seems to indicate that they came back across the sea to Capernaum, probably he was a ruler of the synagogue in Capernaum. That would have been a large and influential synagogue. So he's not just a, the, and a ruler would have been like an elder in the church. So he's not just a pastor in, in a little podunk church. He's a pastor of a, of a, of a mega, megagogue, all right? It's a big synagogue. And the rulers of the synagogues were, as I said, akin to sort of the church elders. They oversaw the synagogue, and many of them were teachers in the synagogue. Almost all the rulers of the synagogue belonged to the party of the Pharisees. Jairus is a member, more likely than not, of the very people who accused Jesus of blasphemy, who claimed he was doing miracles through the power of Satan. This is the group who had slandered him and were already plotting on how to put him to death. Now, we don't know for sure that Jairus was party to all of that, but we would certainly say, at least in our flesh, that if there was any group of people that didn't deserve Jesus' compassion, it was this group. But we read that Jesus went with him. No rebuke, no words of, so now you want me to help you. He just quietly went with him. We should be so thankful for Jesus' merciful disposition toward this man. For which one of us in here deserves our Savior's grace? Which one of us in here are worthy of our Savior's compassion? None. You see, Jesus responds to desperate people, not deserving people. Let me say that again. Jesus responds to desperate people, not deserving people. Romans 5, 6. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. And then later in verse 10. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. The question isn't whether or not we are deserving, but whether or not we are desperate. There is a sense in which all saving faith must be desperate faith. Faith that finds us at the end of our rope without any hope in ourselves. Faith that comes when we have nowhere else to turn. That's saving faith. If you come to Christ still thinking that you're all that... And that there's something about you that makes you worthy of heaven, then that's not the kind of faith that grasps onto Christ for salvation. Saving faith is desperate faith. Matthew 5 3 says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed, happy, happy are the spiritually destitute, the morally bankrupt. Happy? Why? Happy because only when we recognize our emptiness can we drink of the fount of living water. Only when we realize that our hands are empty can we take hold of the Savior. That's desperate faith. That's blessed faith. That's saving faith. Psalm 42.1 was read earlier. As a deer pants for flowing waters, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. And friends, that posture of desperation is not something that is merely necessary to initially come to Christ. We are to continually, throughout our walk with Christ, 
have the same hunger and the same desperation. It is through continual longing for Christ that God sanctifies us and causes us to persevere. Day in, day out, we desperately need the same one who began a good work in us to bring it to completion. Day in, day out, the same desperation. Jesus, I need you to bring this faith to completion. And spiritual bankruptcy, while driving us to Jesus, at the same time drives out fear. Desperation drives out fear. Now, think about Jairus here, or Jairus here. I always pronounce his name wrong. If I say Jairus, forgive me. It's Jairus, all right? Jairus here, think about what this could cost him. It could cost him respect in the synagogue. Or perhaps even his position. Are we desperate enough for Jesus that we are willing to put our reputation on the line and perhaps our job on the line to be identified with him? To live unashamedly for him? So Jesus acknowledges this faith, this desperate faith, and he goes with him. But then there's an interruption because there's another desperate person that comes onto the scene. Verse 24. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. This word thronged literally means to collide or to bump up against him. So there's a bunch of people touching him. And amidst that commotion of the crowd bumping into him and touching him, we read of a desperate woman who in verses 27 through 30 touches Jesus or touches his garment at least. And in a very different way than the crowd, her touch is different than the crowd's touch. It's a touch of faith. She's healed. Augustine had a clever comment about this text and his commentary on this text, Augustine said, flesh presses, faith touches. So you got people pressing up against Jesus, but there's one desperate woman out there who reaches out and touches. And in verse 30, we know that she's healed. I'm going to come back to those verses here in a second, but skip forward to verse 30. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? So Jesus stops. They're on their way to... to Jairus' house, his daughter's in a desperate situation, but he stops. Now, I have to wonder how Jairus felt about this interruption. This stall could be costly. We can only imagine what Jairus thought, but we don't have to imagine what the disciples thought. We have it written right here. Because just like in the boat, they respond with sort of snippy impudence. Verse 31, and his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, who touched me? Basically, they're saying, really, Jesus? You're stopping and asking that question? But for Jesus, this interruption had a name. This interruption had a story. This interruption had a need. I was convicted. I was writing those words when I got a phone call here at the church. And sometimes when I'm studying, I just don't want to answer the doggone phone. And I'm thinking, every interruption has a need. (laughs) All right. And so I answered the phone and was able to talk to some lady. It was a lady who wants to use our church for a wedding. But it gave me a chance to talk to her a little bit and find out if she believes the gospel and different things. And I wonder how many times we look at interruptions the way the disciples did. Really? Now? This? But Jesus sees need. So the next thing I want us to see is that Jesus gently, gently responds to the determined faith of hopeless people. So you have Jesus 
compassionately acknowledging the desperate faith of helpless people. And I know I'm basically saying the same thing in another way, and that's intentional because these two stories are so tied together. Jesus gently responds to the determined faith of hopeless people. I want to see this woman's desperation, but also her determination. But before we look at how Jesus gently deals with this woman, let us first note the significant contrast between her and the ruler of the synagogue. She's poor. He's rich. She's weak. He's powerful. She's alone. He has a family. She's an outcast. She's ceremonially unclean. He's prestigious. He's a, he's a religious leader. She has no name in the story. He's Jairus. But as different as they are, they have one thing in common. They are both in desperate need of Jesus. And they are both determined to get to Jesus. Behold the wide arms of Jesus. Who embraces all who come to him in faith. To everyone else, this woman is invisible. But Jesus stops everything. Because she comes with a determined faith to meet her desperate need. We read in verse 25 that she had a discharge of blood for 12 years. This was a gynecological problem. This would have caused her to be very weak and very anemic. But more than that, this condition, according to Leviticus 15, this condition made her ceremonially unclean. Thus, she was unable to enter the temple at all. Imagine the degree of being ostracized that she felt or the level of loneliness that this woman felt. The Bible says she had been dealing with this for 12 years. That's very interesting. If we look down at verse 42, we see that Jairus' daughter was 12. While Jairus was enjoying a family and watching a young lady grow up in his home, this woman was suffering the whole time. How many of you in here have a 12-year-old? Anyone have a 12-year-old in this room? We've got a few 12-year-olds represented. Has that time gone by fast? I'm, I'm, I'm hoping you're saying yes. I see a couple of folks are, ah. Uh, has it gone by fast, though? Parents, we have teenage children. I think we'd all say yes. It's been the blink of an eye. It's just, it's gone like that. Two people, two different lives. Now, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but some of you in here may be dealing with a chronic illness that you've had for 12 years. Has that time gone by fast? No. It just drags on and drags on and drags on. Two different people, two different lives, two different 12-year spans of time, but both desperate and in need of Jesus. The word that Jesus uses in verse 34, down in verse 34, translated disease, in our other translations, in some other translations, I should say, it's, it's rendered scourge. This affliction was a scourge to her. It was consuming this woman physically, perhaps due to her banishment from the temple. It was even consuming her spiritually. It was consuming her socially, and it was definitely consuming her materially. Look at verse 26. It says, she had suffered much under many physicians, and had spent all that she had, and was no better, but rather growing worse. Now, that's a verse we can all identify with, right? She was spending all of her money on doctors. Now, one of the speakers at the conference we were at this weekend, a medical doctor, he, he noted um, that Luke, who himself was a physician, presents the story in his gospel with a bit more professional courtesy to the doctors, to, to, the, to his colleagues. But Mark here, he pulls no punches. She suffered under many physicians and grew worse. The very fact that she was seeing these doctors was a suffering for her. 
Now, this poor woman spent all she had on some pretty strange medical practices. If the Talmud, the Talmud describes 12 different remedies for her specific condition. So let me read a few of them to you. So these are probably some of the things that she has spent her money doing. One of them was to drink wine mixed with powder made from rubber, alum, and garden crocuses. That was one remedy. Another remedy was to eat Persian. I don't know why they had to be Persian, but Persian onions cooked in wine while chanting, arise out of your flow of blood. I don't know how you eat the onions and chant at the same time, but anyway. There was another remedy. It was to have someone come up behind you and scare you. I don't know if they viewed this like hiccups, right? Boo! You better? Another one of the remedies was to carry around the ashes of an ostrich egg bound to your body with a special cloth. Another one, and this one sounds really wonderful, was to carry barley corn, carry it on your body, that had been removed from the droppings of a she-donkey. I don't know why it had to be a she-donkey, but barley from the droppings of a she-donkey, put that on you, walk around, that should make everything better, call me in the morning. No wonder she suffered so much. She had tried everything, but now her money's gone and her hope is all but gone with it. We read in verse 27, she had heard the reports about Jesus. Ah, now there's the glimmer of hope coming back. She had heard the reports about Jesus. She had heard stories. She had heard rumors, murmurings of a man, but more than a man, a healer, a man who could be the Messiah. And just enough hope breaks forth in her heart to go and see this man. And so she shows up on the beach with everyone else. As we read in verse 27, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. So like, so like a shopper on Black Friday, she fights the crowd, desperate to get to this man, yet she's too scared, too timid, too ashamed, too much of an outcast to talk to him or request anything from him. So she comes up from behind, incognito, stealth mode, but with determined faith, verse 38, she touches him. Verse 28, I should say, for she said, if I touch even his garments, I'll be made well. Now please note, this woman's faith is not perfect faith. It's tinged with superstition. It's timid, but it's determined. And while her hand takes hold of Jesus's garment, somewhere in her heart, her heart was taking hold of Jesus the person. Verse 29, and immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. So just like that, she's healed. What this woman had fought unsuccessfully for 12 years was gone immediately. The burden that she had carried for all this time was lifted in a second. Jesus' power and lordship over disease is on full display. And friends, let us be very clear. Jesus healed this woman, not his robe. Verse 30, And Jesus perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? In his human nature, Jesus did not know who had touched his garments for faith and faith for healing. But his divine nature, according to his father's will, he healed this woman. She had a determined faith, even if it was a good bit timid. The story reminds me somewhat with her determination of the the four friends who took the paralytic to Jesus. And they busted through the roof. And Jesus, seeing their faith, 
saved them. We read of that in Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. The psalmist says in Psalm 63, 1, Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Jesus gently responds to the determined reaching out and touch of faith. The faith of hopeless people. Hopeless, that is, for anything that this world can offer. Physicians and money. But faith that looks to Christ as the only and last hope. Desperate faith, determined faith, but not perfect faith. Both Jairus and the woman have imperfect, flawed faith. But glory be to God that our Lord Jesus Christ knows that. And so my last point this morning is simply this. Jesus powerfully strengthens the deficient faith of his people. Not only does Jesus compassionately acknowledge the desperate faith of helpless people and gently respond to the determined faith of hopeless people, he powerfully strengthens the deficient faith of his people. Jesus is so loving and so tender and so compassionate. He doesn't just condescend to acknowledge and respond to these people's faith. He strengthens it so that it might rest more fully and more resolutely on him. He wants to strengthen what faith they do have. He wants to show them more about himself so they'll put more of their hope in him. Surely both the woman and Jairus had imperfect faith. Both of them had ignorant faith to a degree, pragmatic faith to a degree. They wanted to fix a certain situation in their life, so it was probably to a degree selfish faith. But our faith isn't judged by the intensity or the untaintedness of our faith, but by the object of our faith. Faith is always only as good as its object. And the object of both the woman and the ruler's faith is Jesus. The quality of their faith is imperfect. But the object of their faith is perfect. The quality of their faith is deficient. But the object of their faith is all sufficient. Look at what our Lord does for this woman. She touches out. She touches Jesus' garments. She's healed. Jesus stops. The disciples make their snippy little comment. But Jesus is determined to find this woman. Verse 32, he looked around to see who had done it. Now, now you have to wonder, why at this point does Jesus want to find the woman? Have you ever wondered that? Why does he want to find her now? She's healed. He knows power has gone out from him. Obviously, she didn't want to make a scene. She was trying to do this quietly. Why not just let her go away, be healed, be happy? I'm sure there's a variety of reasons in Jesus' mind. But I think the main reason is that he wants to strengthen faith. He wants to strengthen the onlooking crowd's faith. He wants to strengthen his disciples' faith. He wants to strengthen Jairus' faith, who's watching all this happen as he's waiting. And he wants to strengthen the woman's faith. Jesus loves this woman enough that he does not want her to slip away with some deficient faith that leads her to think that there's magic bound up in his robe. That's why Jesus makes it clear, he verbally expresses it in Luke chapter 8, that the power went out from him. Even to this day in some parts of the world, and I grew up in Latin America in a Catholic culture, and even down there you go into the Catholic churches and they would have like a box or a little shrine, and there would be a relic. Have you ever heard of that? They'd have relics, and they would claim that this little sliver of wood was a piece of Noah's Ark, or a piece from the cross, or there was even a cup of supposedly Mary's milk at one of the churches in Ecuador. So there are all these relics, and what people would do, they would go and they would set up candles around these relics, and they'd worship these silly, stupid relics, which were simply frauds, 
Jesus does not want her to have that kind of faith. He wants her to understand the true object of her faith has to be him. So she's not, he's not going to let her walk away with deficiencies in her faith. So we read on verse 33. The woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling, fell down before him and told him the whole truth. Jesus wants her faith to no longer be secret. It was not enough to believe in her heart and then sneak away. Jesus wants her to have faith that confesses with her mouth too. Just as Romans 10, 9 speaks of. Saving faith is public faith. In front of all the crowd, she is now com- compelled to tell her story. There's no question that this was scary for her to make this confession in front of everybody else. I think that's part of the reason she falls down before Jesus with fear and trembling. Not only out of awe of the holiness of Jesus, but also because of what he's asking her to do. The fact of the matter is, for a woman to speak in public before such a crowd in her day, and above all, to speak about something of such a personal medical matter, would have been very humbling and very scary. But humble faith... It's powerful faith. She cannot leave this scene. Jesus will not let her leave this scene thinking much of herself. She cannot leave this scene thinking much of herself. She must leave thinking much of Jesus. So he's going to bring her to a place of humility. Jesus loves her way too much to leave her with deficient faith. And let us also see that by making her story public, Jesus is now publicly declaring that this woman is ceremonially clean. But I think he's doing much more than just healing her of her medical condition. He's healing her of a greater condition, her spiritual condition. Verse 34, and he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Your translation may say, your faith has saved you. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. When Jesus says your faith has made you well, it does literally mean that your faith has saved you. And when Mark uses that term in his gospel, it always implies more than just simply physical healing. There is a spiritual healing that's happening as well with this woman. This woman has been healed. She has been saved of a greater infirmity. She has been saved from her sinful condition because of her faith. And so with that, the interruption's over. But it's proven to be a very costly interruption, costly for Jairus at least. Verse 35, and while he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing, and by the way, that word could also be translated ignoring, but ignoring what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. So Jesus now turns his faith-strengthening work to Jairus. This reminds me of John chapter 11. You remember John chapter 11, or hopefully you've read John chapter 11 at some point in your Christian walk. Lazarus is sick, and he's at death's door, and Jesus gets word of it. And instead of going to Lazarus right away, what does the Bible say he does? He delays. He takes a pause. He doesn't go. By the time he gets there, we know from the text in John 11 that Lazarus had been dead four days. And and what happens? Mary and Martha both come to him and they say, Jesus, had you been here, he wouldn't have died. That was the level of their faith. Had you been here, he would not have died. They believed that Jesus had the power to heal Lazarus. But he delayed on purpose because he wanted to have much deeper faith than that. He says this in John eleven twenty five, 25. 
I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. He wanted to show these women who had faith. He wanted to strengthen it. He wanted to take it to a higher level and show them, listen, not disease is not only something that I'm Lord over. Death is something that I am Lord over. And I'm going to show it to you. That's why I'm four days late. So I'll weep with you, but I'm about to show you something about me that's going to strengthen your faith. That's what's happening here as well. When he tells Jairus, hey, listen, don't fear, only believe. There's only one thing left to believe. Everything else has been stripped away. This girl has died. What's he asking Jairus to do? Believe that I am the one who holds life and death in my hands. Believe it, Jairus. And they go. Verse 37. He allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. In other words, Jesus has sovereignty over the crowd too. Just takes those few with him. And they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and Jesus saw the commotion. People weeping and wailing loudly. This was simply professional mourners. They were probably on standby. Professional mourners. The tradition of the day was that you hired people to come and mourn whenever a loved one died. And the richer the person was, the more mourners were hired. We know they were professional mourners because Matthew, in his account, tells us that there were flute players there as well. So there's these professional mourners there. And Jesus, in verse 39, says, When he entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. Now, the use of the word sleeping here by Jesus does not mean that she wasn't dead or that she was in some sort of coma. It was very common for Christians, and it is common for Christians, to refer to death simply as sleep because death is merely sleep to the one who has the power over death. And so there's a sense in which God's children never die but only sleep. Upon hearing Jesus' words, we read in verse 40 that they, the mourners, laughed at him. This is how you know they're professional mourners. Because they turn off the morning pretty quick and start laughing. And really the word laugh here is more than la- just ha-ha funny. It means they were mocking him. They're mocking Jesus. They are jeering him. They are deriding him. How shallow and superficial their mourning was. Everybody has to make that decision right there that these mourners made. Either you believe that Jesus is everything he says he is, not what you want him to be, not what the culture says he is, everything he says he is, or you mock him. Two choices. Mock or believe. There's no in-between. If you limit Jesus to something you think he is through your own rational power and strength and might and whatever you have concluded by reading the New Testament, you want to eliminate certain things here or there, and you don't take this word of God as what it is, you are mocking Jesus. So you either mock or you believe. Jesus could care less about their mocking and their laughter. He says in verse 40, he put them all outside, took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went inside where the child was. And there he took her by her hand. It says, verse 41, taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. We have to see the tenderness of Jesus here. When he says Talitha kumi, This word, Talitha, is a very tender word. It'd be like him saying, sweetie. Sweetie, I say to you, arise. Now Luke leaves us no doubt that she was actually dead because in his account we read in verse 55 of chapter 8 of Luke, her spirit returned 
and she got up at once. Jesus' power and lordship over death on full display. Jesus gently reached down into the darkness of death and by grace reunited this little girl's spirit with her body. And verse 42 says, Immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age, and they were immediately overcome with amazement. They are left with awestruck, dumbfoundedness. Verse 43, he strictly charged them that no one should know this. Again, we see a contrast here. Here among the Jews, Jesus strictly charges people not to make him known, not to stir up premature messianic fervor. But when he was in the Decapolis across on the other side of the lake, when he changed that demon-possessed man's life, he told him to go and tell everyone. And then we see one more gentle touch of Jesus in verse 43. And he told them to give her something to eat. Jesus cares about the very ordinary needs of our life. What a story. What a display of his lordship and power over disease and over death. What a display of his compassion and gentleness and power to acknowledge and to respond to and to strengthen the faith of his people. Oh, I pray, friends, that you in here are among his people. But mind you, this passage does not guarantee that Christian parents will never suffer the loss of a child. It does not guarantee that Christians will always be delivered from chronic illness or pain. We can certainly pray to God to deliver us from such things and to spare us such pain. But our hope and our peace and our confidence does not reside in healed children or in freedom from suffering. No, our only hope and our sure confidence and our mind-blowing peace resides in Christ alone. Jesus' ministry would eventually take him to Calvary, where he would take human suffering upon his own shoulders, where he would experience the most horrendous death. And in doing so, he would take the curse of God, the wrath of God for his people. Isaiah 53, 4 says, Surely he has borne our griefs, he has carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But God would not abandon his son to the grave. Jesus would rise again. He would show that death had no claim over him, and he will rise, he will with a glorious, and he rose with a glorious and incorruptible body. And in doing so, he guaranteed our ultimate deliverance from death and from corruption. But this is something much more glorious than temporal healing, much more amazing than relief from temporal suffering. This is a broken world. And in this world, we will suffer, we will experience loss, but we must see that this story is a dazzling preview of what is yet to come. When Jesus has indeed purchased all those, where Jesus has indeed purchased all those who belong to him. One day Jesus will return and then with perfected faith we will see Christ face to face. We will be reunited with believing family members who went before us. And we will be fully and finally healed. This body of death will give way to a heavenly body. No more pain, no more suffering, no more sorrow. But more than all of that, we will be eternally in the presence of our loving, gentle, compassionate, powerful, all-sufficient Lord Jesus Christ. That's what makes heaven worth it right there. That's what makes the new heavens and the new earth worth it right there, is we'll be with Jesus forever. That's what today's passage points us to. But only for the believer. If you're not a believer here this morning, I invite you to come. To put your faith in Christ. It doesn't have to be perfect faith. Don't wait until you feel like you have a certain quality of faith. But be like this woman 
who heard of Jesus and responded. You too have heard this morning about Jesus. And faith comes by hearing the word of Christ. So put your hope in, your faith in, Christ alone. Do not believe in yourself. And you don't come to him for deliverance from pain and suffering. You come to him for him. Put all your faith in Christ. And you can belong to him. And he will belong to you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we close now with a time of response, which will include the taking of the Lord's Supper, I pray, Father, that you'd help us see in this partaking of the fruit of the vine and then the bread that what Christ did for us is on full display. He didn't shed that blood and allow his body to be broken so that we can have exactly what Jairus had, children who won't die, or so that we could have exactly what this woman had, freedom from illness. He did it to bring us to himself. And that in him, the perfect man, who bore all of our curses, who bore all the wrath of God on our behalf, we can be secure. And that though these bodies continue to waste away, and though children will die, and sickness will prevail, ultimately... Ultimately, death has no say over us because we are in Christ. We are in the one who has lordship over disease and over death. And in that new heavens and that new earth, he will wipe away every tear from our eyes, we read in Revelation 12. So, God, we praise you for this. Let this beautiful story push us toward that glorious and greater story yet to come. So, God, we thank you. Pray now that you be with us as we close with the Lord's Supper, and a song. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.